when the end, when the end, What is up, my people, friends, fellow wisdom seekers, fellow truth seekers? Welcome to the Brave New World Order podcast. Straight out the dungeons of podcasting, I am Brandon St. One. Thank you, everybody, so much for joining me for this episode. Today, we are going to dive into the Colbrin Bible. I'm going to read the first five chapters. From the Coburn Bible, which is actually the first five chapters from the Book of Creations. The Coburn Bible is made up of several different books. It's very extensive, very long, but I did an episode on the Coburn Bible a few months back, and a lot of people asked for more. A lot of people want to hear the whole thing. So I am a man of the people, and I give you what you want. So here it is. I thought that I would break it up into our segments. It's a little over an hour, just so you don't get bored. It's really awesome. I had a great time reading it, and I got in the zone reading some parts of it because it was so fascinating. There's just something about reading texts like the Cobrin Bible out loud. It just has a certain energy to it when you speak it out to the universe, I guess. So I had a great time reading the Cobrin Bible for you. So let's get going. We're standing at the precipice of the abyss. Get ready to swan dive headfirst into the Colbrin Bible. The Colbrin Bible. The Book of Creation. The name which is uttered cannot be that of this great being who, remaining nameless, is the beginning and the end, beyond time beyond the reach of mortals, and we, in our simplicity, call it God. Chapter 1. Creation Mortal knowledge is circumscribed by mortal ignorance, and mortal comprehension is circumscribed by spiritual reality. It is unwise for mortal man to attempt the understanding of that which is beyond his conception. For there lies the road to disbelief and madness. Yet, man is man, and ever fated to reach out beyond himself, striving to attain these things which always just elude his grasp. So, in his frustration, he replaces the dimly seen incomprehensible with things within his understanding. If these things but poorly reflect reality, then is not the reflection of reality, distorted though it may be, of greater value than no reflection at all? There are no true beginnings on earth, for here all is effect, the ultimate cause being elsewhere. For who among men can say which came first, the seed or the plant? Yet in truth, it is neither for something neither seed nor plant preceded both, and that thing was also preceded by something else. Always, there are ancestors back to the beginning, and back beyond that, there is only God. 
This, then, is how these things were told in the great book of the sons of fire. Before the beginning, there was only one consciousness, that of the Eternal One, whose nature cannot be expressed in words. It was the one soul spirit, the self-generator, which cannot diminish, the unknown, unknowable one, brooding solitary in profound pregnant silence. The name which is uttered cannot be that of this great being, who, remaining nameless, is the beginning and the end, beyond time, beyond the reach of mortals, and we in our simplicity call it God. He who preceded all existed alone in his strange abode of uncreated light, which remains ever unextinguishable, and no understandable eye can ever behold it, the pulsating drafts of the eternal life light in his keeping were not yet loosed. He knew himself alone. He was contrasted, unable to manifest in nothingness, for all within his being was unexpressed potential. The great circles of eternity were yet to be spun out, to be thrown forth as the endless ages of existence in substance. They were to begin with God and return to Him completed in infinite variety and expression. Earth was not yet in existence. There were no winds with the sky above them. High mountains were not raised, nor was the great river in its place. All was formless, without movement, calm, silent, void, and dark. No name had been named and no destinies foreshadowed. Eternal rest is intolerable, and unmanifested potential is frustration. Into the solitude of timelessness came divine loneliness, and from this arose the desire to create, that he might know and express himself, and this generated the love of God. He took thought and brought into being within himself the universal womb of creation, containing the everlasting essence of slumbering spirit. The essence was quickened by a ripple from the mind of God, and a creative thought was projected. This generated power, which produced light, and this formed a substance like unto a mist of invisible dust. It divided into two forms of energy, through being impregnated with the Spirit of God and quickening the chaos of the void within the universal womb, became spun out into whirlpools of substance. From this activity, as sparks from a fire, came an infinite variety of spirit minds, each having creative powers within itself. The activating word was spoken its echoes vibrate still, and there was a stirring movement which caused instability. A command was given, and this became the everlasting law. Henceforth, activity was controlled in harmonious rhythm, and the initial inertia was overcome. The law divided the materializing chaos from God 
and then establish the boundaries of the eternal spheres. Time no longer slept on the bosom of God, for now there was change, where before all had been unchanging, and change is time. Now within the universal womb was heat, substance, and life, and encompassing it was the word, which is the law. The command was given, let the smallest of things form the greatest, and that which lives but a flash form everlastingness. Thus the universe came into being as a condensation of God's thought, and as it did so, it obscured him from all enclosed within his solidifying creation. Henceforth, God was hidden, for he has always remained dimly reflected in his creation. He became veiled from all that came forth from him. Creation does not explain itself under the law. It cannot do so. Its secrets have to be unraveled by the created. All things are by nature finite. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. An unaccomplishable purpose, which would be eternal frustration, and therefore the universe being created purposefully, it must have an objective. If it ended without anything else following, then the God existing must slumber indifferent to its activities, but he has made it a living work of greatness operating under the changeless law. The creating word has been spoken. Now there was another command, and the power going forth smote the sun so its face was lit, and it shone with a great radiance pouring warmth and light upon its sister earth. Henceforth she would live within the protection of her brother's household, rejoicing in his benevolence and strength. The waters upon the bosom of earth were gathered together, and dry land appeared. When the covering of water was rolled back, the body of earth was unstable, damp, and yielding. The face of the sun shone down kindly upon his sister, and the dry land of her body became very hard. Humidity and dampness were taken away. He gave her a garment of fleece and a veil of fine linen that she might clothe her body with modesty. From the great womb had sprung the spirit of life, and it was rampant in the heavens. It gazed upon earth and saw her fairness, was filled with desire, and came out of the heavenly spaces to possess her. It came not peacefully as a lover, but tempestuously as a ravager. Its breath howled along her corridors, enraged among her mountain tops, but it did not discover the dwelling place of her spirit. She had withdrawn, as a woman withdraws before force, for modesty must not be outraged in submission. Yet she desired its embrace, for among all the radiant company she was honored. The sun saw her perplexity, and he wrestled with the spirit of life and overcame it. When it was subdued and the primal struggle had ceased, it was delivered by the sun to his sister. It was chastened and quieted, and in silence brooded over earth's waters. She was stirred in response. Mud eggs of life potential were formed in swamps. 
at the meeting places of land and to waters. The sun gave quickening heat, and life crawled forth upon the bosom of the earth. The land dust brought forth the male, and the dark water missed the female, and they united and multiplied. The first brought forth the second, and the two produced the third. Earth was no longer virgin, and the spirit of life grew old and departed. Earth was left garbed in the matron's mantle of green. Herbage covered the face of the land. The waters brought forth fishes and creatures, which move about and twist themselves and wriggle in the waters. The serpents and the beasts of terrible aspect, which were of yore, and reptiles which creep and crawl. There were tall walking things and dragons in hideous form clothed with terror, whose great bones may still be seen. Then came forth from the womb of the earth all the beasts of the field and forest, all the creatures of creation having blood in their bodies, and it was complete. Beasts roamed the dry land, and fishes swam in the seas. There were birds in the skies, and worms within the soil. There were great land masses and high mountains, wide barren places, and heaving waters. Fertile greenness covered the land, and abundant life swarmed the seas, for now earth throbbed with the energy of life. Metals lay hidden in her rocks, and precious stones within the soil. Gold and silver were scattered and secreted. There was copper for tools and forests of timber. There were swamps of reeds and stones for every purpose. Everything was prepared. Everything was ready. And now earth awaited the coming of man. Chapter 2 The Birth of Man The love of God penetrated the third veil and became the seed of souls within the soul sea. The body of man, God made of water, and things of the earth, breathing into him the spirit of life, that he might live. But man, when young, lived only to eat and drink and to fornicate, for being conscious only of the earth, and he knew only earthly things and earthly ways. Now the Spirit of God moved over the face of the earth, but was not of the earth. It held all things and was in all things, but on earth could not be apart from anything. Without substance, it was awake, but entering substance, it slept. Consider that, which was told by the servants of Eben, of heaven man, who once wandered the earth, he had no earthly substance, and could not grasp its fruits, for he had no hands. He could not drink its waters, for he had no mouth, nor could he feel the cool winds upon his skin. They tell how that ape-tribed sealock, led by heaven man, perished by flames before the valley of Laud, only one she-ape reaching the cave heights above. When Heaven Man was reborn of the she-ape in the cavern of woe, could he taste the fruits of the earth and drink of her waters and feel the coolness of her winds? 
did he not find life good? It is not all a tale of the courtyard. Man, created from earthly substance alone, could not know things of earth, nor could spirit alone subdue him. Had man not been created, who would have known God's wisdom and power? As the spirit fills the body of man, so does God fill his creation. Therefore, it was that God saw something had to be which joined earth and spirit and was both. In his wisdom, and by the creative impulse which governs the earth, he prepared a body for man, for the body of man is holy of earth. Behold, the great day came when the spirit, which is God, was joined with the beast, which is earth. Then earth writhed in the labor of travail, her mountains rocked back and forth, and her seas heaved up and down. Earth groaned in her lands and shrieked in her winds. She cried in the rivers and wept in her storms. So man was born, born of upheaval and strife. He came wretchedly and tumultuously, the offspring of a distraught earth. All was in discord. Snow fell in the hot wastelands, ice covered the fertile plains, the forests became seas. Where once it was hot, now it was cold, and where no rain had ever fallen, now there were floods. So man came forth, man the child of calamity, man the inheritor of a creative struggle, man the battleground of extremes. Earth nurtured man with cautious affection, weaning him into the recesses of her body. Then, when he was grown sufficiently to be lifted, so he walked in the uprightness of God, she took him and raised him above all other creatures. She led him even into the presence of God, and she laid him on his great altar a man imperfect of earthly limitations, a thing unfinished, ungainly and unlearned, but profoundly was he presented to earth's creator, not her firstborn was man, the son of earth, the grandchild of God, man, the heir of tribulation and the pupil of affliction. God saw man, the offering of earth to her lord, unconscious on the high altar, a sacrifice to him, and a dedication to the spirit of fate. Then, from out of the unfathomable heights, and from behind the impenetrable veil, God came down above the altar, and he breathed into man the breath of eternal life. Into his sleeping body, God implanted a fragment of himself, the seed of a soul, and the spark of divinity, and the man, the mortal, became man, the heir of God, and the inheritor of immortality. Henceforth, he would have dominion over God's earthly estate, but he also had to unravel the circles of eternity, and his destiny was to be an everlasting seeking and striving. Man slept, 
But God opened the great eye within him, and man saw a vision of unsurpassed glory. He heard the voice of God saying, O man, in your hand is now placed the tablet of your inheritance, and my seal is upon it. Know that all you desire within your heart may be yours, but first it is necessary that you be taught its value. Behold, the earth is filled with things of usefulness. They are prepared to your hand for a purpose, but the task is upon you to seek them out and learn their use. This is the tuition for the management of your inheritance. What you know to be good, seek for and it shall be found. You may plumb the seas and pluck the stars. You may live in everlasting glory and savor eternal delights above and below and all about. There is nothing beyond your reach. All, with one exception, is yours to attain. Then God laid his hand upon man, saying, Now, you are even as I, except you sleep there enclosed in matter in the kingdom of illusion, while I dwell here in the freedom of reality and truth. It is not for me to come down to you, but for you to reach out to me. Our unborn friends, Whatever your circumstances of life, you are the children of the past and heirs of those who have lived and died. We trust you have no cause to reproach those who once held stewardship over your estate. But whatever you think of the heritage, you cannot put it aside any more than you can refuse that man then saw a vision of glory encompassing even the spheres of splendor. Unbounded wisdom filled his heart, and he beheld beauty in perfection. The ultimates of truth and justice were unveiled before him. He became one with the profound peace of eternity and knew the joys of unceasing gladness. The eternal ages of time unrolled as a scroll before his eyes, and he saw written thereon all that was to become and occur. The great vaults of heaven were opened up unto him, and he saw the everlasting fires and unconsumable powers that strove therein. He felt within himself the stirring of inexpressible love, and unlimited designs of grandeur filled his thoughts. His spirit raged, unhampered, through all the spheres of existence. He was then even as God himself, and he knew the secret of the seven spheres within three spheres. Then God lifted his hand from man, and man was alone. The great vision departed, and he awoke. Only a dim and elusive recollection, no more than the shadow of a dream remained. 
but deep within the sleeping soul, there was a spark of remembrance, and it generated within man a restless longing, for he knew not what. Henceforth, man was destined to wander discontented, seeking something he felt he knew but could not see, something which continually eluded him, perpetually goaded him, and forever tantalized him. Deep within himself, man knew something greater than himself was always with him and part of him, spurring him onto greater deeds, greater thoughts, greater aspirations. It was something out beyond himself, scarcely realized and never found. Something which told him that the radiance seen on the horizon but dimly reflected the hidden glory beyond it. Man awoke, the revelation and vision gone, only the grim reality of earth's untamed vastness surrounded him. But when he arose and stepped down onto the bosom of his mother earth, he was undaunted by the great powers that beset him, or by the magnitude of the task ahead. Within his heart, he knew destiny lay beyond the squalor of his environment. He stepped out nobly, gladly accepting the challenge. He was now a new man. He was different. He looked above and saw glory in the heavens. He saw beauty about them, and he knew goodness in things not of the earth. The vision of eternal values arose before his inner eye. His spirit was responding to its environment. Man was now man, truly man. The nature of man on earth was formed after the nature of things in heaven, and man had all things contained as potential within himself, except divine life. But he was as yet an untrained, undisciplined child, still nurtured, simply upon the comforting bosom of earth. Man grew in stature, but earth was not indulgent, for she disciplined him firmly. She was ever strict and unyielding, chastening him often with blasts of displeasure. It was indeed the upbringing of one destined for greatness. He was made to suffer cold, that he might learn to clothe himself sent to barren places, that his limbs should be strengthened, and into forests, that his eye should become keen, and his heart strong. He was perplexed with difficult problems, and set the task of unraveling the illusions of nature. He was beset with hardships of every description. He was tested with frustrations, and tempted with allurements. Never did earth relax the vigilance of her supervision. The child was raised sternly, for he needed the fortitude, courage, and cunning of a man to fit him for the task ahead. He grew wily and weary in the hunt. He became adaptable, able to cope with any untoward happening. Overcoming the bewilderments of early days, he found explanations for the perplexities of his surroundings. Yet, the struggle for knowledge, the need for adaptation, 
and the effort to survive were never relaxed. The earth child was well-trained and disciplined. He was never unduly molly-coddled. He cried for bread and went hungry. He shivered and was cast out. He was sick and driven into the forest. Weary, he was lashed with storms. Thirsty, he found the waters dried. When weak, his burden was increased, and in the midst of rejoicing, he was struck down with sorrow. In moments of weakness, he cried, enough, and doubted his destiny, but always something fortified and encouraged him. The earthling never forfeited his godlikeness, for man was man. He was not cowed, nor his spirit broken. A wise God knew his limitations, as it is written in the wisdom of men. Overchastisement is as bad as no chastisement at all, but man was rarely chastised. He was tried, tested, and challenged. He was led, prodded, and urged. Yet nothing was done unnecessarily. The seeming imperfections of earth, the hazards, and inequalities of life, the cruelty, harshness, and apparent indifference to suffering and affliction are not what they seem. As it is, earth is perfect for its purpose. It is ignorance of that purpose, which makes it appear imperfect. Where is there a wiser father than the Spirit of God, or a better mother than earth? What man is now? he owes to these. May he learn to be duly grateful. Above all, let him never forget the lessons learned in his upbringing. Chapter 3. Destruction and Recreation It is known, and the story comes down from ancient times, that there was not one creation, but two. A creation and a recreation. It is a fact known to the wise that the earth was utterly destroyed once, then reborn on a second wheel of creation. At the time of the great destruction of earth, God caused a dragon from out of heaven to come and encompass her about. The dragon was frightful to behold. It lashed its tail. It breathed out fire and hot coals and a great catastrophe was inflicted upon mankind. The body of the dragon was wreathed in a cold, bright light, and beneath, on the belly, was a ruddy-hued glow, while behind it trailed a flowing tail of smoke. It spewed out cinders and hot stones, and its breath was foul and stenchful, poisoning the nostrils of men. Its passage caused great thunderings and lightnings to rend the thick, darkened sky, all heaven and earth being made hot. The seas were loosened from their cradles and rose up, pouring across the land. There was an awful, shrilling trumpeting, which outpowered even the howling of the unleashed winds. Men, stricken with terror, went mad at the awful sight in the heavens. They were loosed 
from their senses and dashed about, crazed, not knowing what they did. The breath was sucked from their bodies, and they were burnt with a strange ash. Then it passed, leaving earth enwrapped within a dark and glowering mantle, which was ruddily lit up inside. The bowels of the earth were torn open in great, wreathing upheavals, and a howling whirlwind rent the mountains apart. The wrath of the sky monster was loosed in the heavens. It lashed about in flaming fury, roaring like a thousand thunders. It poured down fiery destruction amid a welter of thick black blood. So awesome was the fearfully aspected thing that the memory mercifully departed from man. His thoughts were smothered under a cloud of forgetfulness. The earth vomited forth great gusts of foul breath from awful mouths opening up in the mists of the land. The evil breath bit at the throat before it drove men mad and killed them. Those who did not die in this manner were smothered under a cloud of red dust and ashes, or were swallowed by the yawning mouths of earth, or crushed beneath crashing rocks. The first sky monster was joined by another, which swallowed the tail of the one going before, but the two could not be seen at once. The sky monsters reigned and raged above the earth, doing battle to possess it. But the many-bladed sword of God cut them in pieces, and their falling bodies enlarged the land and the sea. In this manner, the first earth was destroyed by calamity, descending from out of the skies. The vaults of heaven had opened to bring forth monsters more fearsome than any that ever haunted the uneasy dreams of men. Men and their dwelling places were gone. Only sky boulders and red earth remained where once they were, but amidst all the desolation, a few survived. For man is not easily destroyed. They crept out from caves and came down from the mountainsides. Their eyes were wild, and their limbs trembled. Their bodies shook, and their tongues lacked control. Their faces were twisted, and the skin hung loose on their bones. They were as maddened wild beasts driven into an enclosure before flames. They knew no law, being deprived of all the wisdom they once had and those who had guided them were gone. The earth, only true altar of God, had offered up a sacrifice of life and sorrow to atone for the sins of mankind. Man had not sinned indeed, but in the things he had failed to do, man suffers not only for what he does, but for what he fails to do. He is not chastised for making mistakes, but for failing to recognize and rectify them. 
then the great canopy of dust and cloud, which encompassed the earth, enshrouding it in heavy darkness, was pierced by ruddy light, and the canopy swept down in great cloud bursts and raging storm waters. Cool moon tears were shed for the distress of earth and the woes of men. When the light of the sun pierced the earth's shroud, bathing the land in its revitalizing glory, the earth again knew night and day, for there were now times of light and times of darkness. The smothering canopy rolled away, and the vaults of heaven became visible to man. The foul air was purified, and the new air clothed the reborn earth, shielding her from the dark, hostile void of heaven. The rainstorm ceased to beat upon the faces of the land, and the waters stilled their turmoil. Earthquakes no longer tore the earth open, nor was it burned and buried by hot rocks. The land masses were re-established in stability and solidity, standing firm in the midst of surrounding waters. The oceans fell back to their assigned places, and the land stood steady upon its foundations. The sun shone upon land and sea, and life was renewed upon the face of the earth. Rain fell gently once more, and clouds of fleece floated across day skies. The waters were purified, the sediment sank, and life increased in abundance. Life was renewed, but it was different. Man survived, but he was not the same. The sun was not as it had been, and a moon had been taken away. Man stood in the midst of renewal and regeneration. He looked up into the heavens, above in fear for the awful powers of destruction lurking there. Henceforth, the placid skies would hold a terrifying secret. Man found the new earth firm and the heavens fixed. He rejoiced, but also feared, for he lived in dread that the heavens would again bring forth monsters and crash about him. When men came forth from their hiding places and refuges, the world their fathers had known was gone forever. The face of the land was changed, and the earth was littered with rocks and stones, which had fallen when the structure of heaven collapsed. One generation groped in the desolation and gloom, and as the thick darkness was dispelled, its children believed they were witnessing a new creation. Time passed, memory dimmed, and the record of events was no longer clear. Generation followed generation, and as the ages unfolded, new tongues and new tales replaced the old. Chapter 4 Affliction of God This comes from the scroll of Carabal Pacthurman, who wrote, The forebears of all the nations of man were once one people, and they were the elect of God who delivered all the earth 
over to them all the people, the beasts of the field, the creatures of the wasteland, and the things that grow. They dwelt through long ages in lands of peace and plenty. There were some who struggled harder, more disciplined, because their forefathers had crossed the dark void. Their desires were turned Godward, and they were called the children of God. Their country was undulating and forested. It was fertile, having many rivers and marshes. There were great mountains to the east and to the west, and in the north was a vast, stony plain. Then came the day when all things became still and apprehensive. For God caused a sign to appear in the heavens, so that men should know the earth would be afflicted, and the sign was a strange star. The star grew and waxed to a great brightness, and was awesome to behold. It put forth horns and sang, being unlike any other ever seen. So men, seeing it, said among themselves, Surely this is God appearing in the heavens above us. The star was not God, though it was directed by his design. But the people had not the wisdom to understand. Then God manifested himself in the heavens. His voice was as the roll of thunders. He was clothed with smoke and fire. He carried lightnings in his hand, and his breath, falling upon the earth, brought forth brimstone and embers. His eye was a black void, and his mouth an abyss containing the winds of destruction. He circled the whole of the heavens, bearing upon his back a black robe adorned with stars. Such was the likeness and manifestation of God in those days. Awesome was his countenance, terrible his voice of wrath. The sun and moon hid themselves in fear, and there was a heavy darkness over the face of the earth. God passed through the spaces of the heavens above with a mighty roar and a loud trumpeting. Then came the grim dead silence and black-red lit twilight of doom. Great fires and smoke rose up from the ground, and men gasped for air. The land was rent asunder and swept clean by a mighty deluge of waters. A hole opened up in the middle of the land. The waters entered, and it sank beneath the seas. The mountains of the east and west were split apart and stood up in the midst of the waters, which raged about. The northland tilted and turned over on its side. Then again, the tumult and clamor ceased, and all was silent. In the quiet stillness, madness broke out among men. Frenzy and shouting filled the air. They fell upon one another in senseless wanton bloodshed. 
neither did they spare woman or child, for they knew not what they did. They ran, unseeing, dashing themselves to destruction. They fled to caves and were buried, and taking refuge in trees, they were hung. There was rape, murder, and violence of every kind. The deluge of water swept back, and the land was purged clean. Rain beat down unceasingly, and there were great winds. The surging waters overwhelmed the land, and man, his flocks, and his gardens, and all his works, ceased to exist. Some of the people were saved upon the mountainsides, and upon the flotsam. But they were scattered far apart over the face of the earth. They fought for survival in the lands of uncouth people. Amid coldness, they survived in caves and sheltered places. The land of the little people and the land of the giants, the land of the necklace ones and the land of marshes and mists, the lands of the east and west were all inundated. The mountain land and the lands of the south where there is gold and great beasts, were not covered by the waters. Men were distracted in despair. They rejected the unseen God behind all things for something which they had seen and known by its manifestation. They were less than children in those days and could not know that God had afflicted the earth in understanding and not willfully for the sake of man and the correction of his ways. The earth is not for the pleasure of man, but is a place of instruction for his soul. A man more readily feels the stirrings of his spirit in the face of disaster than the lap of luxury. The tuition of the soul is a long and arduous course of instruction and training. God is good, and from good, Evil cannot come. He is perfect, and perfection cannot produce imperfection. Only the limited understanding of man sees imperfection in that which is perfect for its purpose. This grievous affliction of man was another of his great tests. He failed, and in doing so followed the paths of unnatural gods of his making. Man makes gods by naming them. But where in this is the benefit to him? Evil comes into the mists of mankind, spawned by the fears and ignorance of men. An evil man becomes an evil spirit, and whatever evil there is on earth comes either from the evil of spirits or the evil of men. Chapter 5 In the Beginning Now the children of God were molded by the hand of God, which is called Awen, and it manifested according to their desires. For all things that have life are molded by Awen. The fox, shivering in the cold lands, longs for warmth, and so its cubs have coats. The owl, clumsy in the dark, longs to see its prey more clearly, and in generations of longing, the desire is granted. Awen 
makes everything what it is, for all things change under its law. Men, too, are molded by their desires, but unlike the beasts and the birds, their yearnings are circumscribed by the laws of fate and destiny, and the law of sowing and reaping. These, the desires modified by the laws, are called enidvadu. Unlike the beasts and birds, this, in man, is something relating to him rather than to his offspring, though they are not untouched by it. Destiny may be likened to a man who must travel to a distant city, whether or not he wishes to make the journey, the destination being his destiny. He may choose whether to go by way of a river or by way of a plain, whether across mountains or through forests, on foot or horseback, slow or fast, and whatever befalls because of this decision is fate. If a tree falls on him because he chose the forest path, it was fated, for luck is an element of fate. Destiny leaves no choice. Fate gives limited choice, which may be good or bad, but it cannot be averted. What is fated must be, for at no point can there be any turning back. The circumstances, anid vadu, of the traveler conform to the law of sowing and reaping. He may travel in comfort or pain, happily or sorrowfully, with strength or weakness heavily burdened or lightly burdened, well-prepared or ill-prepared, when the destination is set according to the degrees of a former life, then the circumstances of the journey should conform with desire. For what use is it desiring a great destination when the law of sowing and reaping decrees that an intolerable burden must be carried on the way? far better to have lesser aspirations. The decrees of fate are many. The decrees of destiny are few. When the earth was young and the race of man still is children, there were fertile green pastures in the lands where all is now sand and barren wasteland. In the midst of it was a garden land which lay against the edge of the earth eastward, towards the sun rising, and it was called Marua, meaning the place of the garden on the plain. It lay at the foot of a mountain, which was cleft at its rising, and out of it flowed the river of Tardana, which watered the plain. From the mountain on the other side ran the river Cal, which watered the plain through the land of Caledon. The river Nara flowed westward, and then turned back to flow around the garden land. It was a fertile place, for out of the ground grew every kind of tree that was good for food, and every tree that was pleasant to the sight. Every herb that could be eaten, and every herb that flowered was there. The trees of life, which was called glacier, having leaves of gold and copper, was within the sacred enclosure. There, too, was the great tree of wisdom, bearing the fruits of knowledge, 
granting the choice and ability to know the true from the false. It is the same tree which can be read as men read a book. There also was the tree of trespass, beneath which grew the lotus of rapture, and in the center was the place of power, where God made his presence known. Time passed, and the children of God were grown strong and upright under the tempering hammer of God and earth. The anvil of God became more kindly. All was pleasant and food plentiful, but life palls in such places, for it is against the nature of man to flourish in these circumstances. Earth is not for pleasurable dallying. It is a place of teaching, trial, and testing. The children of God were not yet the heirs of God, nor inheritors of godhood, but there was one among them who had almost completed the pilgrimage of Anidvadu. He had unraveled the tangled skeins of fate and traversed the tumultuous seas of life to the many ports of destiny, and having paid the debts of sowing and reaping, was one triumphant over Anidvadu. He was Banvar, son of Auma and Atem. He was wise and knew all things. He beheld mysteries and the secret things hidden from the eyes of other men. He saw sunrise and the sun setting in their splendor, but longed for things not realizable in the place where he lived. So because he walked with God, he was culled out from his kind and brought to Marua, the garden place. He came to it across the mountains and wastelands, arriving after many days journeying, weary and close to death because of the privations he suffered. He could just reach the refreshing waters from which he drank deeply, and filled with exhaustion, he slept. In his sleep, he dreamed, and this was the manner of his dreaming. He saw before him a being of indescribable glory and majesty, who said, I am the God above all, even above the God of your people. I am that which fulfills the aspirations of men, and I am that in which they are fulfilled. You, having traversed all the circles of Anidvadu and established your worthiness, are now made my governor of earth. You shall rule all things here, guiding them in my ways, leading them ever upwards into glory. This will be your labor, and behold, here is your reward. A cloud mist seemed to gather about the glorious being, enfolding him, so he was no longer visible. Then the mist gradually cleared, and the man saw another form emerging. It was that of a woman, but one such as Fanvar had never seen before, beautiful beyond his conception of beauty, with such perfection of form and grace that he was dumbfounded. Yet the vision was not substantial. She was a wraith, an ethereal being. The man awoke and sought food from the fruits about him, and having refreshed himself, wandered about the garden. Wherever he went, 
he saw the wraith, but was unafraid because she smiled encouragingly, bringing comfort to his heart. He built himself a shelter and grew strong again, but always, wherever he went, the wraith was not far distant. One day, near the edge of the garden, he fell asleep in the heat of the day and awoke to find himself surrounded by the sons of both us. Not true men, but yoslings, kinsfolk, to the beasts of the forest. Before they could take his strength and wisdom, he loosed himself among them, slaying some in his rage and might before the rest ran away. When it was done, he sat himself down beneath a great tree, for he was wounded, and blood gushed out from his side and gathered thickly beside him. He became faint, falling into a deep sleep, and while he slept, a wondrous thing happened. The wraith came and lay beside him, taking blood from his wound upon herself, so it congealed about her. Thus, the spirit being became clothed with flesh, born of congealing blood, and being sundered from his side, she rose a mortal woman. In his heart, Vanvar was not at rest, because of her likeness, but she was gentle, ministering to him with solicitude, and being skillful in the ways of healing, she made him whole. Therefore, when he had grown strong again, he made her queen of the garden land, and she was so called even by our fathers, who named her Gula, but Fanver called her Aruha, meaning helpmate. In our tongue, she is called the Lady of Lanavid. Now, God enlightened Fanver concerning the woman, saying, This woman was drawn from her compatible abode in a realm of beauty through the yearning aspirations of men. Her coming accomplishes something which would otherwise have taken countless generations, for earth is more fitting for men to learn manly things than for women to learn womanly ones. This woman is not as other women, being in no way like yourself. Every hair of her head is unlike that of a man. Every drop of blood and every particle of flesh is that of a woman, and quite unlike that of a man. Her thoughts and desires are different. She is neither coarse nor uncouth being altogether of another, more refined realm. Her daughters will walk proudly, endowed with every womanly perfection and grace. Delicacy, modesty, and charm will be the lovely jewels enhancing their womanliness. Henceforth, man will be truly man, and woman will be truly woman. Men, being girded with manliness, and women clothed with womanliness. Yet they shall walk together, hand in hand, towards the ascending glory before them, each the helpmate and inspiration of the other. So Fanver and Aruha lived in contentment amid bounty and fruitfulness, with freedom from afflictions and sickness. They delighted in each other, and because of their differences, were drawn closer together. Aruha 
brought but one thing with her when she crossed the misty frontier, the treasure of Lanavid, the jewel contained in the moon chalice, the stone of inspiration fashioned by the desires of men, never owned by any but the daughters of Aruha. This, the Lengel Aruha gave to Fanver as her dowry and her pledge of purity and exclusiveness. She followed the ways of the cradle land, not the ways of earth. Within the garden land was the sacred enclosure, the domain of Fanver and Haruha, forbidden to those of the children of God who had now come to this place. It contained the chalice of fulfillment, granting any who drank from it the realization of all things to which they aspired. None might drink from this, save Fanbar and Haruha. Also, there was the cauldron of immortality, containing in essence, distilled from the fruits growing in the garden, and this guarded against mortal ills. Aruha brought forth a son by Fanbar. He was called Rautoki, and a daughter who was called Armina. Each knew the mysteries of magic and the ways of the stars. In the fullness of time, Rautoki married among the daughters of the sons of God and had two sons, Inanari and Nenduka. It was Inanari who was first taught the weaving of cloth from plants, and Nenduka was a mighty hunter. Armina also married among the sons of God and brought forth a son who is called Belenki, and daughters Anunua and Mamita. Anunua knew the making of pots and things of clays, and Mamita the taming of beasts and birds. Nenduka had two sons, Namtara and Canaan. Namtara had two sons also, Nenduka and Dadam, before dying in the fullness of manhood. Belenki married Enidva and had a son called Enkidua, and a daughter called Estartha, meaning maid of the morning, and she became a great teacher among the children of God. This was the Estartha who became the first moon maiden, being later called Lady of the Morning Star. Enkidua had a daughter, and her name was Mava. Outside the sacred enclosure, known as Jisar, but forming a gateway into it was a circular structure of stones called Gilgal, and within this was a shrine, wherein was kept a sacred vessel called Gwinduiva. This was like a goblet, and was made of rainbow-hued crystal set in gold with pearls. Above the cup appeared a shimmering moon-colored mist like a thin, cold flame. At certain times, when the heavens were in a proper position, the Gwinduiva was filled with moondew and potions from the cauldron within the sacred enclosure, making a pale, honey-colored liquor, and this the people drank from the goblet. However, there were different proportions in the vessel for those of the blood of Fanver and Aruha, and those who were children of God, but not of their blood. It was the potion from the Gwinduiva which kept sickness and disease away from those who drank it. Dadam, the first father, married Letha, and they had a son called Herthu. Dadam then married Maeva, 
who had a daughter, not by him, and this was Gwyneva, the cuckoo child fathered by Abramenid of Gwarthin, son of Nam Tengnigo, whom we call Luid the Dark Father. About the land of the children of God was the wasteland where Yoslings called the children of Zumat, which means they who inherit death, dwelt. Amongst these, the Nemintenegal, the wily hunter, was the most wise and cunning. He alone was unafraid of the children of God, and he alone dared to enter the garden land. In the days when Astartha was teaching, Nemtenegal often came to hear her words, and the children of God were not displeased, for teaching the wild men about them was a duty which they had been charged. Nemtenegal, therefore, participated in their rites, but could not partake of the elixir from the Gwindueva, because this was forbidden. While it gave health and strength to the children of God, safeguarding them from the sickness of the Yoslings, if given to others, it caused a wasting away. It was also altogether forbidden for any of the children of God to mate with the Yoslings, for this was deemed to be the most unforgivable of sins. Now, the wily one learned much from Astartha, and in the fullness of time, brought his own son to her, and he became as her son, living in her house and forsaking the ways of his people. Astartha called him Luid the Lightbringer, for it was her intention that he should be taught the ways of those who walked in light, that he might in time enlighten his own people. Luid grew up tall and handsome. He was quick to learn and become wise. He was also a man of the chase, strong and enduring, a hunter of renown. But there were times when the call of his people was strong. Then he would go out furtively into the night to indulge in their dark rituals. Thus he became knowledgeable in the ways of the flesh and in the carnal indulgences of the body. Datum became a servant of the sacred enclosure, where the misty veil between the realms could be penetrated, for all those having the blood of Aruha had twin sight, an ability to see wraiths and Sith folk, ancestors and spirit beings, all the things of the other world, not clearly, but as through a veil. Beside the place called Jassar was a pleasant parkland with trees of every kind and a stream, also thickets of flowering bushes and all manner of plants growing lushly. It was the custom of Maeva to wander there in the sunshine, and Luid also went there, so it came about that they met among the trees. Maeva knew the man but had shunned him in the past. Now she saw he was handsome, possessed of many attractions, so her foot was stayed, and she did not run away. As the days passed, they dallied longer together, and Luid talked of things Maeva had not heard of before. She felt a stirring in her blood, but she did not respond or heed his temptations, because of the things that were forbidden. So Luid went to the Moon Mother, wise woman of the Yoslings, 
in telling of his desires, beseeched her to help him. The moon mother gave him two apples containing a vile substance, which they had drawn through their stalks. This Lewid gave to Maeva, who had then became helpless in his hands. They met again after this, for Maeva became enamored towards Lewid, but it happened that she became ill with a strange sickness and was afraid. Then Datum became ill, and Lewid also, and Lewid said to the woman, you must obtain the pure essences from within the sacred enclosure, and Satina, the moon mother, will prepare an elixir which will cure us. This, he said, because none of his kind had ever been able to obtain the sacred substances, though they had always coveted what had been denied them. Now, because of her frailty, the woman was pliable in his hands, and Lewid seized the opportunity. To achieve his ends, Lewid gave Maeva a potion which had been prepared by the Moon Mother, and she administered this to Datum and those with him by guile and deceit, so that they fell asleep. While they slept, Maeva stole from the sacred substances and took them to Lewid, who gave them to the Moon Mother, and she made a brew. Part of this was given to Maeva, and the rest was drunk by the Yoslings from their awful Ankatal during the night rites. When the morning came, they were all smitten with grievous pains, and before the sun set that day, all the Yoslings were stricken with a sickness such as they had not known before. Maeva took what had been given to her, and finding Datum laid low in his bed, gave him a draught from her vessel, though she had to use womanly wiles to get him to drink it. She drank the remainder, and they both slept. But when they awoke in the morning, both were suffering pains, and this was something they had not known before. Datum said to the woman, What have you done? For what has happened to us cannot be unless the things which are forbidden have been done. The woman replied, Lord, I was tempted, and I fell. I have done that which is forbidden and unforgivable. Datum said, I am bound by duty to do certain things. But first, let us go into the Jisar, the place called the Bechthulchris, where I will seek enlightenment. So they went there together and stood before the shrine beneath the tree of wisdom. There, they were filled with an inflowing vision seeing themselves as they were and as they should have been, and they were ashamed. He, because he had not followed the proper path of man, and she, because of her falsity. There, in the reflecting mist, the contamination of the woman was revealed, and the man's heart shriveled within him like a flower licked by flame. Then they saw a great spirit being materializing, in the reflecting mist, and he said to them, Woe to you children and your house, for the greatest of evils has befallen the race of the children of God, and it is defiled. The heritage of the Katam Hapa is lost. The fetid flow defiling the women results from the incompatible intermingling, but it is not all, for sickness and disease 
are also generating from the ferments of the impure implantation. Dadam said, The fault is with the woman. Wherefore should I suffer? The spirit being replied, Because you two are now as one. The canker worms of disease and sickness strike both equally. But you shall not again defile this place. Henceforth, the misty veil becomes an impenetrable barrier, severing our two realms from each other, so they can no longer be easily spanned. Between us, there will now be no means of communication. Henceforth, man and woman, fated to unite in love divine, shall be divided and set apart, though ever yearning reunion. They may cleave one to the other, seeking the unity which will rekindle the flame, but unless their efforts transcend the limitations of earthly things, they will be in vain. The spirit of man is now severed from the whole and cast again into unconsciousness, and it too shall long for reunion with the whole. The spark shall seek to return to the fire, for otherwise it becomes nothing. The web of fate is rewoven and the paths of destiny remade. The design of life is redrawn. Again, the progression begins in ignorance, birth and death, pain and pleasure, joy and sorrow, success and failure, love and and hate, peace and war, all the light and shade, the many hues making the splendidly intricate pattern of life on earth. This is a new beginning, but a beginning not in purity and unencumbered, but one already weighted with debts and burdens. The spirit being continued, enough wickedness has been wrought by your willfulness and disobedience, for the decrees forbidding certain things were for your own benefit. Immortality was nearly within your reach. But had you achieved this, you would have brought an even more grievous evil upon yourselves and your inheritors. For freed from servitude to change, you and they would have been unable to progress. The children of God were driven out of the garden land by spirit beings, and then guardians were set at its gates so none could re-enter. Then it was withdrawn beyond the misty veil, the waters ceased to flow, and the fertility departed. Only a wilderness remained. The children of God went to dwell in the land of Amanigo, which is beyond the mountains of Mashur, by the Sea of Dalamuna. For this time onward, man fashioned his own spirit likeness. Some, who were loathsome in aspect even unto themselves, went apart and were mercifully veiled in dark depths. They said among themselves, Let us dwell here in the darkness and prepare a place for others like ourselves, so that when they follow, they abide here and join us. Thus were the dark regions formed and inhabited by demons who are not by the hideously fashioned spirits of evil men. These things have been written into record. In Saboit, 
They used to say this was the manner of man's making. God sent his creating craftsman spirit down to earth, and the reflection of the one was drawn into a spiritless body, and this became the heart of man. These are the words written by Thonis of Myra in Laducia in his day. You ask me what is man, and I answer, his life becoming aware of itself. He is the intangible knowing the tangible, spirit in matter, fire in water. When this first happened, none remembers, and only the old folktales remain. There was the beginning, and then the garden, and it was this garden man found himself. Before this, he was not free, being one with everything about him, as he could not disobey Good and evil could not be. They were non-existent. Man became free through awareness of himself, and with this knowledge denied any kinship with the beast, as he was no longer in harmonious relationship with the things of earth. He became discontented, dissatisfied, and restless. He wanted to belong but felt his place of belonging was not there. He had been reborn as a man-god. And therefore, it is truly said that man was born of earth and spirit, under a tree, the symbol of life, and in a garden. There, the eyes of the man and woman were opened, and being above the beasts, they knew they were different, and set apart from all else that breathed. They separated themselves, being now ashamed of their state and strangers to each other. The carnal satisfaction of lesser creatures now no longer sufficed. They had lost contact with the source of love, but though knowing something was lacking, knew not what. They had fallen into carnal knowledge, which only man can know, for only he feels the reproach of divinity. They were removed from the garden of content by an inhalation of the divine substance and could not return because of the barrier between man and non-man. Kamelik has written, The entwined were cut apart and since that day have never known content. They wander restlessly, ever seeking to unite again and together find the jewel which is lost to earth forever. Lupesis has written, This first woman, who came from the void, is the eternally glorified goddess, the inspirer of hearts, the ideal of womanhood honored by all men, the priestess at the shrines of delicacy and tenderness. She was the ideal woman, who, because of man's nature, is always tempted by his twin shade, the beast in his form. If the beast triumphs and she falls, the ideal becomes enshrouded in winding cloths of disillusionment, and something is lost to the heart of a man. These words are also there. They did not partake of wisdom, and fruit from the tree of knowledge is bitter. Men are denied their true birthright. The fall of man was a fall from loving contact with God into material carnality. The soul that had shared the consciousness of God fell 
into unconsciousness, but by becoming ensnared in matter, the fall severed man from the source of his spiritual sustenance. Thereafter, his efforts were to struggle back. In his blind groping for God, after the fall, he discovered demons and found it easier to worship them than to continue the search. God is always waiting. Man has only to look up, but it is easier to go down the hill than to climb it. It is easier for man's spiritual beliefs to degenerate than to evolve. Who among men knows the truth and can write with certain knowledge? Would not this certainty be against the law? No man was there at the beginning to see and write, but of one thing alone we can be sure. The creating God knows how and why. And could the acts of one so great be without purpose? All right. Thank you, everybody, for joining me for the first five chapters of the Colbrin Bible, the book of creation. I would really like to hear from you what you think about this. I hope that you all enjoyed it. Thank you so much for coming along with me on this journey. Reach out. Email me, the Brave New World Order Podcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter, X at Brave NWO Podcast. Answer the QA on Spotify. Reach out. Let's engage. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. There is much more to go. It's like a thousand pages. So if you enjoy it, I'm going to keep going, keep reading it for you. So I got much more to come. Got the Gods of Eden Part 3 coming up and some current events episodes coming up as well. So you'll be hearing from me very soon. In the meantime, stay positive. Think for yourself. Question everything. Much love, everybody. Peace.